Would you uh, pray with me before we dive in? Father God, thank you for this opportunity for us to uh, explore this uh, incredible moment in the Gospel of John that we're going to look at today. Uh, I pray, Father, that in these moments we have together as we, as we read uh, the Bible, I pray, Father, that, that I would simply disappear and that your Holy Spirit would remain. Uh, would you give us ears to hear what it is that you have to say to each one of us today? Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, if you could believe it, we are actually in week eight of this sermon series, which is actually pretty long for us. Usually we, our series are like four or five weeks, so this is a long one. This is a marathon. But we are, we are in week eight of this series, Exploring the Gospel of John. And uh, if you're just joining us, this series has, in a nutshell, been about the fact that John's approach to the, to the ministry of Jesus is kind of provocative. John has, a, has a, a chip on his shoulder, and everything that he's presenting is in these really stark dichotomies. It's light and dark. It's life and death. You're in or you're out. Like, that's how John presents, presents Jesus. And, and so far, as we've, as we've seen, uh, John presents Jesus as a miracle worker who, who can raise the dead. He, he presents uh, he presents Jesus as someone who speaks with the authority of God himself. And if you remember week one, he talks about Jesus as, as the very word of God. He is God's intentions made real in our world. So he's the one through whom everything was created. So he's, he's raising the stakes really, really high. And John, throughout the gospel, he's challenging us as readers to pick a side do you believe it? He's like, this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God in your face. Do you believe it? That's the question. Now, if you look at the flow of the book, to, of what we've kind of covered so far, you see that there's this kind of narrative crescendo that happens through most of the first part of John. Uh, it's like building in energy and momentum. Uh, it starts, you know, all the way back at Jesus turning water into wine at this party in rural Galilee. So it's kind of insignificant on the world stage, but the whole uh, gospel begins to build energy, build momentum, and it's kind of all building up to him going to Jerusalem and being crucified and the resurrection. So it's this, it's this huge narrative crescendo. But what we are about to see when we turn to chapter 13 of John is that, is that uh, the narrative kind of just comes to a screeching halt, or at least, at least it slows down significantly because he's about to spend the next four chapters of his gospel looking at one tiny moment in the whole ministry of Jesus, the, what we call the Last Supper that he has with his disciples. So this, this narrative has been chugging along, chugging along, and then it's like, and we just stop. And it's this long exploration of this one particular meal. It's kind of like this kind of came to me. It's kind of like we've been, we've been on a roller coaster and it's been like chink, 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 like going up and up and up. And now we've just reached the top where everything just kind of pauses and then we're about to have the big plunge after that. So we're going to be at the top of the roller coaster for three weeks and we're going to explore this because it seems a little odd. Why would John uh, change the pacing of his gospel like this? Well, what he does, as we're going to see in these three weeks, is that in the Last Supper— John, he, he kind of draws all the threads of his gospel together. Here, in this moment, we see what Jesus himself cares about most at a, at a very crucial time in his ministry, right before he's, he's crucified. And so in this moment, we see the very core of his identity. 
And we see Jesus, frankly, setting the stage for all the things that are going to come after. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the birth of the church. It's all being set up right now. Again, we're at the top of the roller coaster, and it's about to, we're about to plunge. So uh, let's dive in. Let's take a look at this Last Supper. We're going to begin today in John 13, and we're going to look at how the Last Supper begins, not with words, but with actions, Okay. So John 13, if you want to turn in one of the house Bibles in the seat in front of you, it'll be page 895. Hello to those of you watching online. You're going to be on your own to figure out how to get a Bible, but uh, there's one's online, and I'm sure you can handle it. So John 13, real quick, while you're turning there, I do want to just extend an invitation. Right after this service, uh, in room 111, right across the lobby, we are going to be having uh, our next welcome party. And welcome parties are very— casual. It's just an opportunity for anybody, any of you who want to get to know Grace a bit better, maybe introduce yourself, have us get to know you. Uh, it's, it's, it's just great. We've had a blast every time. I'm going to be there. Some of our other leaders will be there. And, uh, and if you want to tour the care center, I'll be giving you a, a personal tour of the care center. So come to the welcome party. You don't have to be brand new. No judgment. If you've been around for a while and you haven't really connected, now's the time. Welcome party right after this service. Room 111. Okay, I'm done talking about it. All right, here we go. Let's read this and see how the Last Supper begins. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. Now stop right there for a second. The next word is so. So. It's about to set up, what we just read is going to set up all of what we're about to see. So I want to stop before we go on and read what happens. I want to look at this moment because if you look at the end of verse 1, first of all, it says that what we are about to see is Jesus loving his disciples to, quote, the very end. Now, it's possible that, that when John says the very end, he means, like, time. He's talking about he loves them to the last possible moment. But it's also possible, and I think this is probably more likely, that when he says he loved them to the very end, he means that he loved them to the, to the utmost, to the uttermost, the extreme. This is the fullest example of his love. Okay, so that's, that's what one thing that we're about to see. But then there's another thing. Look at, the, look at verse 3. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. And the next word is so. Again, so. So he's got all authority. And, and again, looking at the rest of the gospel, we know what this means. It means Jesus is acting out God-given authority that he, as the very one through whom all things were created, he's got the authority of, of the universe. He's the word of God. We're about to see him do something that fully represents that. And at the same time, he's demonstrating that the love that he has for his disciples, this is the extreme example of it. So in a nutshell, the king of the universe is about to show us what true love looks like. So let's keep reading. Let's keep reading verse 3 over again. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So, so he got up from the table he took off his robe, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he poured water into a basin. 
Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. No, you will never, ever wash my feet. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. And Simon Peter exclaimed, then, then in that case, wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. And Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. Okay. So with all the authority in the world, right? All the authority in the universe, authority over everything, having come from God and returning to God, loving his disciples to the very end, Jesus washes their feet. Ew. (laughs) Right? Ew. What a gross thing. I mean, that... At least that's how we'd react today. But I'm telling you, we don't even realize just how gross and nasty of a job this would have been. I know, by the way, some of you, I've heard from a couple people that are like super grossed out by feet stuff in the Bible. They don't like touching feet and it's grossing you out. I'm sorry because it's way grosser than you probably think. All right, what the disciples went through. Now, we live in a world of concrete and socks and carpet and, you know, right? We, We... Generally speaking, our feet are pretty clean most of the time. That's just kind of how our world is. But some of you, you've probably experienced this, maybe when you were a kid, maybe now, when you spend a long portion of time outside in like nature with your feet in open-toed shoes or barefoot, what happens to your feet? They get pretty darn gross, right? I have a a favorite pair of of footwear that I wear. Liv knows. My wife's right here. She knows. Uh, It is a 15-year-old pair of secondhand Crocs that are just my all-time favorite thing to wear when I'm, when I'm I don't know, walking around the farm or doing whatever. Um, they are old and they are ripped apart. Our puppy Cleo, when she was little, she ripped off or chewed through the little straps on the back. So I can't even, I can't even put them into four-wheel drive mode anymore. I am just stuck. But, but I love these Crocs. I wear them all the time. But I'm going to tell you, if I spend a whole day walking around in the Crocs and I'm, I'm out there cleaning the chicken coop or, or uh, scooping out uh, pig droppings or, or working in the garden or whatever, my feet get pretty nasty. You know, they do. I can wash off the Crocs, but I also have to wash off my feet. My feet get pretty gross. That's just how it goes. So imagine living in the ancient world where there was no concrete or carpet or socks. Maybe they had socks. I don't actually know. I got to talk to Tim Ayers about that one. I don't even know. They may have had socks back then, but probably not the disciples. They walked around in sandals. So if you're spending all of your day outside and you have to walk everywhere because there aren't cars, like, you're going to get pretty dirty in your feet. Now, I'm positive that washing your feet as just a basic part of daily hygiene was something that every common person would have done, okay? This is, you, you would just normally be washing your own feet to, to stay clean on a, on a regular basis. But if you were at like a, a big dinner party or at a wedding or something like that, uh, if you were being hosted by someone else, it was customary for that person to have your feet washed for you. But guess who got that job? It wasn't the host, I'll tell you that much. You know who did that job? The lowest or the least servant or slave that you could find. 
The, the least dignified person is the one who was given that nasty job of washing someone else's grody feet. Nobody wanted that job. It was, it, was, it, was the, it was demeaning. It's gross. In fact, I've talked about this before, but even symbolically, your feet are the lowest part of your body, right? So touching someone else's feet is like, it's like an act of, of submission and an act of like lowering yourself. So you would not, you would not wish this on anybody. It's the job of a servant or a slave to wash someone else's feet. So imagine, imagine the shock and the discomfort that the disciples would have been experiencing when Jesus gets up to do this really demeaning, gross, nasty job, right? He wraps a towel around his waist. He, he pours water into a basin, and I'm sure they're starting to realize what's about to happen. And it would have been so deeply uncomfortable. And think about this. Think about this. He goes around. He washes everybody's feet. Now, when it says disciples in, in the Gospels, sometimes that means the 12 disciples, sometimes that means a whole bunch more. We don't know who exactly John had in mind here, but even if it was just the 12, just the 12 disciples, do you know what? If, if he had taken three minutes per person to wash their feet, he would have spent over a half an hour washing all of their feet. Think about how awkward and weird and uncomfortable that would have been. 30 minutes of Jesus going around one by one and washing his disciples' feet. Now, it is no surprise to me that Peter responds the way he does. Look at, look at verse 8. He says, no, you will never, ever wash my feet. Literally, he says, you will never wash my feet for all eternity, right? He's like, no way is this going to happen. It's not done. It isn't right. Like, you, you are our master, our teacher, our, our, our leader, our Lord. If anybody should be having their feet washed, it's you, Jesus. But Jesus replies in a way that, He doesn't—it's not super gentle. It's actually kind of intense. Look at what he says. He says, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. He's saying this to one of his disciples that's been walking with him for years. He says, unless I wash your feet, you don't belong to me. Whoa, what's he getting at here? Somehow, to Jesus, somehow this this action, this degrading act of, of service is so integral to who Jesus is that that. It's part of what it means to belong to him. That's interesting, right? What, so what does that mean? What is, what is he trying to communicate? Well, let's keep reading and let's see if we can get an answer here. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and he sat down and he asked, do you understand what I'm doing, what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right because that's who I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. He's saying, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Now that line about, about slaves are not greater than their master, it's kind of, kind of interesting, a little play on ex- expectations, because he's saying, all right, yeah, I'm, your ma- I'm the master, you're the servant, you're the slave in this, in this dynamic, and if I'm the master and I'm washing your feet, then who are you to say that you shouldn't let me wash your feet, right? He's inverting it and saying, as your master, I'm going to be your servant, which means you're forced to then do the same thing. It's kind of an interesting little play on expectations. Uh, but here's what is fascinating to me. 
because he's talking about expectations of these disciples. When you compare the Gospel of John to the rest of the Gospels, to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you realize that John is really scant on the, uh, the moral or ethical teachings of Jesus. The other Gospels, they have, you know, very clear sayings like, you know, love your enemies, care for the marginalized, forgive people. He, he says specific things to do or not do. But in John, other than a few comments where he says, obey my commandments or follow my teachings— he never really spells out what his moral expectations are. So I, I was thinking about this. Why? Why would that be the case that he really doesn't do that? Well, part of the reason, undoubtedly, is because by this time, when this was written, which was relatively late compared to the rest of the New Testament, uh, the, the moral teachings of Jesus would have been very familiar to people. Everybody would have heard the moral teachings about, about you know, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you and, and uh, his teachings on all, all the different aspects of money and divorce and all that random stuff. People would have understood all of that. That's for sure what, one reason why John doesn't feel like he has to go into it. But there's another reason. There's another reason. And I believe this probably is the main one, I think, that John intentionally steers clear of specific ethical commands in John because he understood that Jesus was not calling his followers to behavior modification. The message of Jesus was, was not, here's a new set of rules to follow, right? John understood that. No, Jesus, from the beginning, was, was calling his followers not to behavior modification, but to adopting a whole new way of life a whole new way of life, uh, uh, to live with a posture that changes the way we behave in every circumstance. It's a posture that changes who we are, how we engage with the world, not just when we've got a list of rules to follow or not break, right? This posture that Jesus introduces, that John wants to highlight, this is the posture of self-giving love. It's the posture that Jesus lived with, and, and, and it's the posture that he had as one with all authority over heaven and earth. He's the one who lowers himself as a servant. That is his posture. I quote Philippians 2 all the time, but I'm going to say it again. Though he was God, Paul says, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. What we see with Jesus washing his disciples' feet is a symbolic act of self-giving love that represents the bigger posture of his life. And it represents the very tangible act of self-sacrifice that was going to happen less than 24 hours later as Jesus died on a cross for those who do, did not deserve it. Today at the Last Supper, he's sacrificing his dignity. Tomorrow, he's sacrificing his life. See, this is the posture of self-giving love that Jesus wanted his followers to adopt. Do as I have done to you. A few verses later in verse 34, Jesus says this, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Here's the rule to follow. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. See, this is why Jesus tells Peter, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. 
Because self-giving love, lowering oneself, setting yourself aside, serving others with humility, this is at the core of who Jesus is. And it is at the core of what it means to be his disciple, to belong to him. I'll put it this way. If you want to understand Jesus, look at his towel and basin. If you want to follow Jesus, you better pick up your own. I'll say that again. If you want to understand Jesus, who he is, his character, look at his towel and basin. If you want to follow Jesus, pick up your own towel and basin. Wrap that towel around your waist, fill a basin with water, and get to work loving and serving others whether or not they deserve it. This, this is how the world is going to know that we actually follow Jesus. That what we are talking about is not just some new uh, moralistic religion, but that what we have is actually real and it actually changes the world. The posture of self-giving love. It's the posture that he displayed and it's what he expects from us. Now, I love John 13. I love this moment because you, you just can't escape it. There's no pulling punches here with Jesus, call, what he calls his disciples to do and to be. This simple moment of, of humility on Jesus' part is profound. There's so much you could get into here because it's at the very essence of who he is. And I'm so glad that John captures it the way he does and when he does in this story. I love that he captures it here because in the next few chapters, guess what we're going to see? We are going to see Jesus going to his death. We're going to see him executed on a cross by all-powerful Rome. We're going to see him seemingly defeated by the, the religious leaders of Israel. But because Jesus washed his disciples' feet beforehand, he is setting us up. He's preparing us to see his crucifixion in an entirely new light. He wasn't defeated. He wasn't a victim. No, Jesus go, is going to the cross willingly because it is who he is. He is the God of self-giving love walking among us. The cross and washing his disciples' feet are the same thing. They are Jesus lowering himself and elevating those in front of him. Now again, there's a lot to process here. And, and there are a lot of different ways that we could think about how this applies to our lives today. But I, I got to tell you, after the last few weeks of pondering this and chewing on this, there are two, two questions that I want to raise for us, for you and for me, to process uh, based on what I think we need to hear right now from this story. So here's, here's the first question, and I just want you to think about this. Will you let Jesus wash your feet? Right? That's question one. Will you let Jesus wash your feet? Now, here's the deal. I'm not talking about Peter here. I think you, you're probably expecting like, oh, no, Jesus, not my feet. What Peter says, that's not what I'm talking about. If you look uh, in the story, there is a, an unspoken detail that blows my mind. Verse two tells us that Judas, one of the 12 disciples, was already prepared to betray Jesus, right? He had already made up his mind. It was in his heart. And we know, according to the story, that, that by this point, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He knew what J Judas was about to do. But if you look all the way down at verse 30, after all of this happens, it tells us Judas left at once, going out into the night. The implication there 
is that during this whole foot washing scene, Judas is sitting right there. Do you realize what that means? It means that Jesus washed Judas's feet. Jesus washed Judas's feet. He knew what Judas was about to do to him. He knew the betrayal and the sin and the evil that was within him, and yet Jesus washed his feet. Why? Why not wait till he was gone? Why not? I mean, he was about to go off into the night. Why not wait a few minutes and let Judas leave and then wash their feet? I'll tell you why. Because it is in his character as our Savior. This is his posture. He doesn't just serve his friends. He doesn't just love those who've earned it. No, Jesus is a servant to all. Jesus died for all. Even for Judas. Which is why I'm asking you, will you let Jesus wash your feet? Now, you're probably not as broken as Judas. You're probably not, not nearly as, as dark or, or sinful or, or disturbed as what Judas must have been. But I know, because I talk to you, I know there are an awful lot of us who feel an awful lot of shame because of who we are and what we've done. So I just want to ask you, what if Jesus knew everything about you and he still wanted to humble himself on your behalf? What if Jesus understood your deepest, darkest shame and he still willingly sacrificed his life for you? What if Jesus knew your brokenness, knew your, your filth, your addiction, your lies, your sin, your pain? What if he knew that thing you did that nobody else knows about? What if he knew all of it? And he still wrapped a towel around his waist and stooped down to wash your dirty feet. How would you respond to that level of grace and love and mercy? How would you respond? This is not a hypothetical question. It's not. Because it is exactly what Christ did for you on that cross. He lowered himself. He, he gave up his divine attributes. He lowered himself and became a servant for you. You. He humiliated himself to bring you life. Do you believe it? Will you believe it? Will you let Jesus wash your feet? <coughs> Excuse me. Look, this is between you and him. This question, will you let him wash your feet? This is between you and him. I don't want to get in the way of it. So I just want to give you a moment. Listen to the voice of the Spirit. Listen to what Jesus has to say to you and maybe take a second and respond. The second question <clears throat> that I'd like you to reflect on, we all need to reflect on, is 
What is your towel and basin today? First question is, will you let Jesus wash your feet? But now I want to turn to us and ask, what is your towel and basin today? A big part of the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet is that Jesus expects his followers to serve each other in the same way that he has served us, right? Do as I have done to you, wash each other's feet. We are called, in other words, to have the same posture of self-giving love as Jesus. And look, I know I sound like a broken record, right? Talking about self-giving love again. Yeah, yeah, Barry, we get it. Self-sacrifice, blah, blah, blah. We get it, right? Look, I'm not going to—guys, whoever wants to be the leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve— others and give his life as a ransom for many. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. And again, Philippians 2, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Look, maybe I am a broken record, but if I am, it's because the scriptures that we look at are broken records as well. We go here so many times because this concept of self-giving love, it is woven into the very nature of the Savior we follow. And I got to tell you, this is the hardest thing for us to get through our thick skulls in this really selfish time. So yes, I'm a broken record. I'm going to keep coming back to that because we are called to have a posture of self-giving love just like Jesus showed us. I'll say it again. If we want to understand Jesus, look at his towel and basin. If we want to follow him, and I want to follow him, we had better be ready to pick up our own. So here's my my practical question. Reflect on this. Who are you being called to serve right now, today? Who in your life is God calling you to lift up and to elevate? even if they don't deserve it, especially if they don't deserve it. Whose dirty, nasty feet are you being called to wash? Is it, is God calling you to forgive somebody? Someone who hurts you? Uh, Is someone in need that God wants you to support? Is that who it is? Maybe it's somebody who gets on your nerves. The last thing you want to do is spend time with them But God's calling you to invest in that relationship. Who is it? I'll shoot straight with you. Picking up your towel and basin, washing the feet of others, it it will likely mean giving something up. Could be your pride. Could be your your, uh, money. Could be your time. Might even be your reputation. The self-giving love of Jesus is costly. It's costly. I'm going to shoot straight. It is the only thing. I'm convinced it is the only thing that is going to bring healing to this very broken world. This is how the world will know that we are his disciples. Not because of our victory, not because of our power, not because of our strength, but because of our humility. Jesus does not call us to be winners. He calls us to be servants. So Michael, yeah, thank you. 
So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you again, who is God calling you to serve? Who is he calling you to wash the feet of today? And then tomorrow, guess what? Who is he calling you to wash the feet of tomorrow? And the day after that, and the day after that, who is he calling you to serve? Especially, especially if they don't deserve it. What is your towel and basin? Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your patience because this is one message that it really is hard for us. I don't know whether it's the culture that we're in, whether it's the human condition, but we have a really hard time being selfless. And yet, Father, in your grace, in your mercy, your son came to show us what that selflessness could be, what that posture of self-giving love could be. And so, Father, I pray for all of us, whether, whether we need to receive that love, whether we need to have our own feet washed in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our mess, by, by your son who loved us so dearly or whether we need to start picking up our towel and basin and learning how to wash the feet of others. Regardless of what it is, I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would show us the truth of the character of your son, that we would be modeling our lives after his and showing this world that we really do follow you. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, the one who washes our feet. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us/hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.